If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today's conversation addresses a heavy topic, trauma. Trauma comes in many forms. It can be from abuse inflicted by someone else, such as physical or emotional abuse. It can also come from a deeply disturbing experience, like an illness or an accident. And of course, there's also secondhand trauma that comes from empathically hearing other folks' stories who've been traumatized or being exposed to other traumatizing stories again and again. Trauma is prevalent in our society, and it touches everyone, from children to the elderly, from poor to the wealthy. There is no doubt that we interact daily with coworkers, and especially in the nonprofit sector, clients who have been touched by trauma. So what can we do about it? How can we personally and organizationally develop strategies to respect and empower people who have experienced or are experiencing trauma? Here to discuss all of this with us is Kate Doherty. Kate is the Community Impact Director at HopeWorks Camden and is an acknowledged leader in the field of trauma-informed care. Currently, she leads the Camden Healing 10 Collaborative, a cross-sector coalition of residents in Camden, New Jersey, who seek to infuse a trauma-informed approach across all care services in the Camden area. She also trains Camden area businesses, schools, organizations, and nonprofits to develop and leverage a trauma-informed culture. So please join me in welcoming Kate Doherty to the podcast. Hey, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to start today's episode with a pretty powerful story that you shared with me about a young girl coming to terms with how her brain functions. Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah. So as part of HopeWorks Camden, we actually hire young people to go out and do the trauma-informed trainings that we offer. And that requires that they learn a lot about trauma, its impact, and particularly how the brain 
functions when it's been impacted by trauma. So one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had was talking to a young woman about this thing called amygdala hijacking. So amygdala hijacking is where your amygdala or the part of your brain that its whole job is to keep you safe. And in humans, that part is overactive. That comes from our evolutionary history. It comes from keeping us safe for a really long time. But in today's society, that's not such a great thing because it thinks that things are dangerous even when they're not. Think about if you've ever been really freaked out by hearing a loud noise or a siren in the distance and jumps. That sort of response comes from millions of years ago needing to keep us safe, but it's not great now. So I had this young woman who had experienced quite a bit of trauma in her life, and she was learning about this and learning that sometimes when the amygdala gets triggered, it completely takes over and stops you from being able to think rationally, called amygdala hijacking. And it was just so interesting when she looked at me after learning this term and was like, wait, you mean my brain's not broken? I was like, no, your brain's actually working exactly how it is supposed to work. You were just put in an abnormal situation. So your brain's working normally in an abnormal situation. And that's why you feel like you can't think rationally. That's why you feel like you can't think about the future and that you're in that survival mode all the time. And so being able to share that with her was such a powerful moment. And I think really when I came to terms with this trauma-informed thing, it's a buzzword in the nonprofit culture right now, but it's something that needs to be shared with everyone. It's not just something that teachers and nonprofit professionals can keep to themselves, but it needs to be shared with our participants. It needs to be shared with for-profit companies. It needs to be shared with anyone who will listen. I will say amygdala hijacking is real. And any of us, and I certainly have, who have misplaced their cell phone knows exactly what I'm talking about. Suddenly, Everything in your brain is like, oh my gosh, things are not right. Things are not right. And all you've done is misplaced your cell phone. You know it's somewhere in your house or your car. Exactly. And I think that one of the most powerful things is thinking about what stress and the stress hormones in your body actually do. So the youth healing team actually plays this really fun game that we do in one of our webinars that we're hosting right now. And we ask people to do a list of things, rapid fire, like clap your hands and then start jumping up and down and then start saying the alphabet backwards and then raise your hands in the air. And then we ask them, those were all pretty easy to do. You managed them. What was the third thing I asked? And no one can tell us because even that fun game of jumping up and down and doing all of that releases adrenaline and cortisol, which are stress hormones. And one of the things that those stress hormones do is they limit your short-term memory. And so you physically can't remember what you were doing five seconds ago. And yet a lot of times we ask those really stressful questions at the exact wrong moment. So when someone's in that amygdala, when they've lost their cell phones, the first question you ask is, would well, you remember where you had it? And it's like, no, you physically can't remember where you had it at that moment. And so we ask people to do these really impossible things that until we understand the brain science behind trauma and toxic stress, we're never going to understand why they can't do it. I love that. So essentially, you just gave me my mother's advice. And you know, I was born in 1971. So there were no cell phones, but I would lose my shoes. And my mother would be like, just sit down and do something else. And you remember where your shoes are. And it was the most frustrating advice ever when you're five years old to be told, just sit down and do something else. 
And but did it work? Oh yeah, it always worked. Of course, it always worked. Yes, and and that's what I'm saying. Like I love that because like that is like time honored advice that your mother gives to you. It's like okay, lower the stress a little bit, and you'll remember where they are. No one stole your shoes. And I think that that is such a classic example of a lot of trauma informed techniques are things that we have known for a really long time, but didn't have the science to explain why they worked. It's not this big thing. It's I'm come from the youth development world and we have like positive youth development techniques. They all mesh really well with trauma informed practices because we knew they worked way back when we just didn't know why. And I think like a great example of that is like active listening, for example, it's been one of those things been taught forever of like, this is a great way to help people change and to help do growth. Well, knowing science, one of the things that we know is that that connection between people lowers stress hormones. And so just taking those few seconds to actively listen to someone, you might not know why it works, but why it works is actually that it's lowering the stress that someone's feeling so that they can access other parts of their brain. So one-on-one, you know, say you're someone's manager or supervisor, what are some of the things you can do? Like if you have to have a conversation with someone, it's a difficult conversation, you know that it's going to be stressful for them. What are some of the things that you can do to help ratchet down that stress and help them really not get hijacked? So a few things, but I think the first one is proactive, proactive, proactive. We get asked if we do de-escalation training. We don't do de-escalation training. If someone's escalated, you lost. You're already not there. So definitely, I think the first thing is let people know what the conversation is going to be. If you have to have a hard conversation with someone, don't put a random thing on their calendar, right? A random calendar meeting with your supervisor, you get that like sick stomach. I personally have a very open relationship in terms of communication with my supervisor, who's our executive director, Dan Roten. And the first time that he ever put something on my calendar like that, I literally called him like almost in tears at 7 a.m. I woke up to an email that just said quality assurance conversation. And in my brain, the story that I was making up was, oh my goodness, I've done something wrong. And in his brain, all that conversation was, and all the conversation was going to be, was talking about a new quality assurance that we were putting in place across the whole organization. (laughs) But when I saw that, that's not the first thing that I went to. So I got immediately amygdala hijacked. And the only thing that I could think about was how I was going to lose my job. And I'm a professional, right? So imagine what that does to our young people or our clients. If they see this random calendar invite or get this random ominous letter in the mail saying they have to come in. So letting people prep gives them a lot of that control back because then your prefrontal cortex, your rational part can get involved. So that's one thing. The other thing that's really important is to make sure that everybody has tools. We all have tools that we use to calm ourselves down, but we don't think about using them at work sometimes. We call it a safety plan at HopeWorks. And it's just like three to five things that you can do, and they're different things, to calm yourself down. It doesn't matter if you're getting angry and want to send that email you know you shouldn't, or if it's an embarrassed kind of upset. Whenever you get those feelings in your body, it's something that you can use, and that's something culturally at HopeWorks that everyone has. From for us, the young person that walks in on day one, we talk to them about a safety plan all the way up to our executive director and even our board. We've talked to them about safety plans. And so it's a part of our culture. And it's always at meetings, 
if you say something like, hey, I need to go like just do some laps around the office and use my safety plan, that's respected. And it's such a powerful tool because emotional management is a key part of learning how to be an employee. And it's a key part of trauma-informed practices as well. Obviously, everyone has different things that work for them, different tools that work for them. And I know you said do some laps around the office. What are what are some other common techniques or tools that work for people as part of a safety plan? Yeah, so I'll just share mine. On mine, I have laps around the office. Another one that I'll do is I'll get up and make a cup of coffee. It's something I've made a million cups of coffee in my life. I can do it with my eyes closed. It's a very ritualistic thing for me. And so just the act of getting away from my desk and making a cup of coffee gives me space sometimes. Those are great for times when I can get up, right? But I can't always get up in the middle of a meeting. And so we have internal safety plan ideas as well. And so on mine, the two that I use most frequently are sitting there and trying to say the alphabet backwards. So don't you want to try to say the alphabet backwards right now? Z, Y, X, W, U, V. Are you thinking about anything else? No, I'm actually having to like picture it because I'm visual. I picture each letter as it goes through my head. So that one's so effective. Again, going back to brain science, because it forces you from your amygdala back into your prefrontal cortex. And so you're having to think about that. You're having to use some senses if you like touch your hands together or like draw them in the air, whatever that is, that can bring you back into a moment and stop that amygdala hijacking process. And the other one that I use is a technique called square breathing or tactical breathing. I learned it when I was in high school. I had terrible test anxiety and so was taught this by one of my teachers. And what you do is you are going to inhale for four. So one, two, three, four, then hold for four, one, two, three, four, and exhale for four, one, two, three, four, hold, one, two, three, four. You just keep doing that. You can kind of draw a square with your finger in the air. That really helps me to keep it pretty evenly paced. So I just have to jump in real quick. And I get that that's supposed to calm people down. That would calm me down so much I would fall asleep. I'm going to use that the next time I can't fall asleep because that would just calm me down so much. So the really cool thing about that is it's actually other name is tactical breathing. So it is taught to U.S. snipers because it's that effective at lowering your heart rate. So in maybe the most stressful situation in the whole world, that's the breath technique that they turn to. Hmm, There you go. If you need to be a sniper, you need to fall asleep or you just need to de-stress, square breathing might work for you. Yeah. So those are some ones that you can do when you're sitting down, but it's also important to move during some of these. And you'll find that sometimes the breathing doesn't help. The alphabet doesn't help. And you're like, what do I do? So in that case, movement is really important to incorporate. The butterfly feelings that you get in your stomach. Do you know what that actually is? Like biologically? No. What is it? So it is all of the blood away from your digestive system so that it can go into your large muscles. So when you do the fight, flight, or freeze response, you actually have the blood power to do right, that. Right. You're ready to run. Yeah. You're ready to run, which puts this like really unfortunate like idea around my dating life that I don't think about. <laughs> Everyone's like, you're supposed to get butterflies in your stomach. And I was like, wait a second. But that means that I'm scared. I don't know how to take right. this one. <laughs> so if your body's telling you to move, you should move. <laughs> 
obviously there's just some techniques that maybe individuals can do and managers or mentors might do or help someone develop. Let's talk about creating a, a trauma-informed culture. And, and one of the things that you've actually kind of already started on is by saying, okay, everyone that comes into your organization, staff, board member, whoever, develops a safety plan. What are some of the things that organizations that want to move toward being, because let's face it, we're all really on a continuum. So toward being a trauma-informed culture, what are some of the other things they should be doing or thinking about? One of the first ones is common language. Having everybody understand what people mean when they say the word trauma and what the difference between trauma and toxic stress is. And the difference is actually trauma is the thing that happened. Toxic stress is the biological process or the way that that stuff gets under your skin and can really affect you biologically. And so understanding those, not just your staff, also your participants, helping them to understand some of the things that they've been through is a great way to do it, is one of the first ways that I think an organization can start to move there culturally. Another way is by changing the question. It's a pretty common one, but changing the question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. It doesn't have to be something that you're physically asking someone. It can just be that check in the back of your brain. So a great example. I had a young person today who was late and signed on to one of our group meetings. We're all virtual right now, of course, but signed on to one of those and was like 15 or 20 minutes late. And it's the fourth time it's happened this week. And so I asked her afterwards, I was like, hey, can we just check in? And so instead of saying, what's wrong that you've been late? Like, what's wrong with you? You've been late four times this week. This isn't something that you normally do. I was able to ask her, hey, what's going on? What happened this morning that you couldn't get on our call on time? And found out that she is actually a primary caretaker for an eight-year-old right now. That wasn't the case when we were in the office. And so that's not something that I knew. And if I had jumped in right away with what's wrong with you that you can't get on this call on time, I never would have gotten that information. And it really opened the door to a whole conversation of, okay, so how can I better support you in being a caretaker while you're home during the COVID pandemic and still being a great employee for me, a great intern, and was able to talk about how to balance family stuff and set boundaries when it's work time, but also just opening that line of communication of just shoot me a text. If you're going to be five to 10 minutes late, just shoot me a text. That's, I care more about that than you being on time. So we had this great conversation and really came out with some actionable items that we wouldn't have if I hadn't have been able to change the question. Part of what I hear there is also really clear communication of what your expectations are. In addition to you being understanding and listening and being open to you saying, okay, even though you probably do not phrase it this way, okay, it's my expectation. If you're not going to be there, you tell me you're not going to be there on time. Yeah. I think with trauma-informed care and trauma-informed practices, one of the first things and one of the pitfalls that I've seen organizations go through is, well, I know what's happening. And so I can't have expectations anymore, right? Like, I just want to feel sorry for people. And it's like, no, that's not right. We don't want to lower the bar for anyone. They can still get there. We just might need to reach down and give them a hand up. Right. You know, it's funny. And, and I'm a huge fan of the book, Radical Candor. In Radical Candor, they refer to that as ruinous empathy. Yes. 
where you feel so bad for the person. You're like, oh, I'm just going to let them slide. They're not performing well or they're showing up late for their Zoom meetings, whatever it is. I, I know they're going through a tough time and it's ruinous empathy because you're not helping them get up. You're just letting them stay down. And eventually you get tired of them not performing or not showing up on time. And then they wonder why they're losing their job. And that's where the nonprofit sector gets this like really bad rep, I think, of not being the real world. I think I hear that all the time. It's like, we're doing workforce development, but when they get out into the real world, like, no, this is the real world that they're in right now. I hope that the whole world looks like this and has that ability to say, like, communicate with me and we'll help you get to the bar. No one's going to lower it. So where I'm going to push back a little bit is... I think there are some for-profits that are light years ahead of nonprofits on this continuum. And again, I'm kind of viewing it all on a continuum. We see a lot of companies that fully for-profit companies that are really all about the bottom line, but also operating from a, a real trauma-informed lens. We also see a lot of nonprofits that often because of scarce resources don't feel like they can operate from a trauma-informed lens. I bet there are probably some listeners out there right now with quarter million dollar budget and five staff and going, my gosh, it's a struggle every day. What can I do to move my organization toward this when I worry about payroll every single two weeks? So yes, to everything you just said, I think that so many for-profit companies who are really focused on the bottom line have embraced this because it's good for your bottom line and because it's good for your outcomes. Some of the for-profit companies that we train we hear the same sort of things from them, right? My staff's really burnt out. My staff is not being creative. I have really high turnover, which we hear in the nonprofit sector also. But that's their concern, right? They're really concerned about turnover because they understand how much it costs to refill that position. And so it is cheaper for them and more effective for them to do some of these things. Whereas, again, I think that scarcity mindset kicks in for a lot of nonprofits where they are so much in their amygdalas all the time that they're not looking at that rational, this is something that's good for the whole organization going forward. And so it can be really hard to make that shift. HopeWorks went through that when we made the shift for being trauma-informed. And it happened in 2015, right around there, um, started before then. And it was hard for some of our staff. And some of our staff honestly didn't stay and had some turnover. But then after that, we had this period where we had rapid growth, grew a ton, served double the amount of young people, were a lot more successful with the young people that we were serving, and didn't have staff turnover. And so it was like this win-win that no one thought could happen after a lot of that hard conversations and a bunch of risks. It feels a lot riskier when you're in a scarcity mindset to do some of these more radical things. So as you think about that 2015 and on transition that HopeWorks did, what were some of the things that were critical to its success in that transition? One of them is having leadership bought in. So this wasn't just something that our low-level people wanted. It was something that our leadership, and that included our board leadership, was really bought into. Our board was coming to trainings with us. Our board was a part of the core group of people that were implementing these sort of things. And so that was really critical because then our executive director had some of the flexibility to talk about how this was going to pay off a year down the line at board meetings without getting grilled every single time about how it wasn't paying off right now. And so having that sort of buy-in was really critical. 
And then the other really important part, which I've said before, was including our participants in the transition. It wasn't just something that our staff could, it's something that our participants had to be aware of. They had to understand what we were doing. So it's not just something that you can have a one-off training and be considered trauma-informed. Like, cool, you understand that toxic stress and trauma has an impact, but it's critical that everyone understands that and that you're working together to do those tools. So really part of what I hear you saying is a lot of work was done to bring the entire organization into alignment. So the board, the leadership, the line staff, the participants, everybody had to be in alignment. And really, if you couldn't reach alignment, this would not have been successful. Absolutely. But it didn't happen right away, right? It was definitely, we had some people who were in alignment from the beginning, and then we had some people that were slow to change. I'll pick on Dan Roten again, because he's our executive director. He's a huge supporter of trauma-informed practices. He himself is not naturally trauma-informed. I think that if you talk to his wife, she would be shocked at the trauma-informed stuff that he does at work. But he realizes how effective it is. And so a lot of the folks who weren't on board were able to see how much of an impact it had on our young people and how much of an impact it had on our outcomes. We went from measuring the amount of young people that finished our web training course in numbers to percentages, right? We had such small percentages that we couldn't even measure the percent of people to now we have, I think a, last year it was if they make it through halfway of the process, they have an 85% completion rate and a 90% completion rate if they get an internship, which means that they're actually hired by our company. And so these numbers were, before we went to this transition, like unheard of, but they became possible because it was something that the entire staff was able to buy into. And then the more outcomes we got, the more buy-in we got. And it was a nice snowballing effect from there. Hmm. Wow. That is really cool. I love that. Kate, I want to make sure that I ask you the off-the-map question. So this is a great conversation, but I got to leave time for the off-the-map question. Now, you shared with me that you won a free bungee jump in Australia. And I can only imagine there's a story behind that. Yes, there is. It's not a trauma-informed story very much. It might have been trauma-inducing. Me and bungee jumping would be trauma-inducing. I just have to tell you. Oh, I didn't actually do the bungee jump. I just won it. And then I gave it to someone <laughs> as a Christmas gift. Traveling is one of the things that I do for self-care. See, look, I can loop in trauma everywhere I go. I love that. And in 2015, I was in Cairns, Australia, which is where you go to go to the Great Barrier Reef. So I was about to go on a Great Barrier Reef. I was staying in a hostel. If you went to this certain bar, you got free dinner. And I was like, awesome. I'm spending all this money on a Great Barrier Reef dive trip. I'm going to go eat the free spaghetti that someone's going to feed me. So I went there, was the only American in the whole place. And while I'm eating dinner, they had a goldfish racing competition, which was a gimmick for all of the tourists. But essentially what it was is long plexiglass racing tubes that were open at the top and they would dump goldfish in and then you would use a straw and blow behind the goldfish and try to get it to go down the plexiglass pipe. Since I was the only American in the bar, I got voluntold that I was going to be the American representative. My goldfish name was Jaws. And... <laughs> 
somehow I ended up winning against probably 50 other people. I just had a very scared goldfish, apparently. So I probably caused some trauma to this poor goldfish. Exactly. You had a traumatized goldfish, right? Had a traumatized goldfish whose amygdala was way overactive, right? Like he was just Right, had butterflies in the belly, was like, oh my gosh, I need blood in the fins to get out of here. To get out of there, right? And so I ended up winning a bungee jump and then was able to give that as a gift to a family that I ended up staying on a cattle ranch with them for a few weeks and was able to give their 17-year-old son his 18th birthday present was to go bungee jumping. Yeah, I bet an 18-year-old would really, really love that. I'm kissing 50. There's no way you're tying a stretchy rope to my leg and throwing me off a bridge. Not going to happen. No, I would be stubborn enough that I would do it and that I would hate myself for it. See, and that's that's awesome because I'm at the point now where I'd get butterflies. They'd be like, no, I, when I get these, I'm not supposed to do it. Uh-uh, I'm not doing it. See, I'm going to bring it back to trauma too. See, and I think that is actually the rational response. My stupidity and my stubbornness is like the, I don't know, someone said I had to, so I have, I've got to do it now. Well, see, I don't know, because you were smart enough to give it to someone else to be like, I know this is not a good thing for me to do. Here, I'm going to give this to you. Because it had been like a reef diving trip, you would have done it. You would not have given it to the kid for an 18th birthday present. Yeah, I think it also had to do that I was very broke at the time while backpacking through Australia and so needed some sort of present to give them as a thank you. So it was a win-win situation for me. That's awesome. I totally love that. I have never heard of a goldfish race before, and you might be the first goldfish jockey that I have met. So there you go. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about trauma-informed leadership and the great work that Kate and HopeWorks Camden are doing, then visit their website at hopeworks.org. There, you can find resources on web design, GIS, and trauma-informed trainings for your organization. HopeWorks also has a podcast. And by the way, I happen to know that you're a podcast listener. So if you're interested, check it out. It's called The People Who Got Me There. And it is all about mentors. Although I'll share with you, Kate flips the script. What she does is she talks to successful young people. And instead of asking them how they got to where they are, she asks them, who helped you get here? And then... In the second half of the show, she talks to the mentor. It is super cool. Definitely make sure you go on your podcast streamer of choice and check out the people who got me there. And we will link to that in our show notes as well. Kate, thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's always amazing to get to talk about things that are working. Dear listener, thank you so much for joining us today. And let me just share with you that if you missed those links, although it's not really that hard of a link, it's just hopeworks.org. But if you missed that link because you were checking out goldfish racing or bungee jumping or anything else that we talked about, you can find that and more in our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And if you found today's show beneficial, then please take a moment to rate and review us on your streaming app of choice. And of course, you are always welcome to share it with friends, family, and colleagues. Take, for instance, our listener, EJRVA, who left this review on iTunes. I am a low-key obsessed with this podcast. It has allowed me to have a constant source of inspiration. Wonderful. Thanks for the positive review, EJ. I was happier than a kid with a tub of trick-or-treat candy when I received your review, and it helped many others find the podcast. That, listeners, is our show for this week. 
I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.